Welcome to YesPHX Presents, a crowdsourced community-based podcast for, by, and about entrepreneurs and startups in the greater Phoenix area. We're recording this live today at Galvanize in Phoenix, Arizona, in the heart of the Warehouse District. Uh, I'm your host for this episode, Vincent Orlek, president of Social Media Club Phoenix. I'm accompanied by our truly amazing producer, the founder of Zcast, the podcasting app and all around podcasting resource, Roz Yalov, sitting to my left. Uh, we have a pretty special guest today. Uh, he's an integral part of the Tufted Needle team, serving as vice president of Amazon and also VP of analytics with the company. Uh, he progressed through the ranks in just under four years, coming up on four years after starting as a software engineer there in 2014. Prior to that, he was the founder and executive director of the Arizona Microcredit Initiative for almost three years. Um, most definitely a better skier than I. And I grew up in New England. Um, Jeff Wells. Jeff, welcome to the SPHX Presents podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, man. I'm thrilled that you could make some time. And, uh, I, you know, we were talking beforehand about your travels. You, you've, yes. you've been <laughs> to 35 countries. Something like that. Something like that. Say, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what country have you not been to that you still want to go to? I haven't been to South America at all. Wow. I've been to Central America, Belize and Costa Rica, but I really want to go to Chile. Chile, a lot of mountains. Yeah, and they have skiing there. So in the summer, escape course. the heat in Phoenix, maybe go skiing in, in Chile. <laughs> Do you play HQ Trivia? Have you, that the app, the HQ Trivia app? I've seen it, I've never actually played it. There was some question about Chile, like last night's $100,000 game or whatever it was. So it's, it's top of my mind right now. It has like a thousand mile coast. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that, so South America, you have not been to yet. What's what's the your favorite place that you've been to so far? I really like Scandinavia, um, Copenhagen and Denmark and Oslo and Norway and Stockholm, Sweden. How about Amsterdam? Amsterdam is beautiful as well. I was yeah. there last year. I, I was watching. Um, have you watched uh, Ugly Delicious on Netflix yet? I haven't. You got to check it out. Missed that one. <laughs> Dude is all over Copenhagen. I feel oh, like awesome. There's a there's a really famous restaurant there. It starts with an N. It's not Nobu, but it's like Nomo or I think it might be Nomo. That's it's like voted the best restaurant in the world in the world <laughs> a couple of years ago. And this. Yeah. The, the guy um, that was on the, the host the show, basically he, his buddy is the chef at that restaurant. And they were talking about all the things that they do. But but now like Copenhagen, you know, Amsterdam is on everybody's list. I think to go to. Right. But but Copenhagen, you're saying is the spot. Oh yeah. I think Scandinavia is beautiful and everything's designed perfect. It looks like a really well done Ikea. <laughs> Even the airport, it's like the fanciest airport you've been in just because their design is so good. Super clean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. There's a list I think that just came out. I, I saw it on LinkedIn about the top 10 cleanest airports or nicest airports and no U S airports. And I think yeah, that, I think that one European was on airports are a, a class of their own. Yeah. For well, sure. and, uh, up that far North at, in the summer, it's light out till like 11. And oh, so right, the right, twilight right. lasts forever, which is really nice. 
that so you get the most out of your your trip when you go during that time your day yeah oh yeah uh, yeah in the winter it's <laughs> it's pretty dark so you're you're a skier like we touched on yes yeah i actually um, in high school my sport was varsity ski racing and club racing so my um, school in portland would race against all the other schools in the nearby mountain yeah you're from portland oregon that's right yeah. um not maine Oregon, although Maine, Maine has some thing. skiing. No one here asked yeah, that. That's right. I know. I know that. I, I I don't think anybody has ever been from Portland, Maine. Whenever that's come up, it's always Oregon. Yeah, not once. <laughs> Am I Oregon? Not Oregon, right? That's right. Yep. Oregon. Okay. Yep. Just want to make sure. Yeah. I don't want to start off on a bad foot saying the state wrong. Um, but actually, that that leads into into something that that we want to talk about too is um the. You, you moved here from Oregon. You went to ASU. Yep. Graduated. Um, started the the nonprofit. Um, during school, yeah. During school. You helped run that for a couple of years, three, three and a half years yeah, or so. Yeah, started sophomore year and then phased out during the senior year and transitioned and, the leadership. And what was like the Arizona microcredit initiative, talk a little bit about what, what that actually was and is still because it's still going. Yeah. So the idea is that it's a nonprofit organization that can give loans to low income entrepreneurs in order to help them start their business. These are people that don't have access to credit. Traditionally, they don't really have the money to start up, but a lot of them have ideas and dreams and things that they want to build and they just need some capital. And so where a bank, it doesn't make sense. The risk profile is too high. Uh, this organization as a nonprofit, as well as being student run, means that it can have extremely low overhead. So everyone in the organization is a volunteer. And the idea being we went and raised a loan pool of about $75,000, which then can get lent out to these low income entrepreneurs. And as it gets paid back, it just goes back in the pool and there's no administrative costs at all, really. How did you raise that money? Um, from a uh, from an organization here, the Arizona Community um, Fund, which is by Fred Pecus. It's his personal fund. He gives out a, a ton of money each year that he's wow. set aside. So is this something you just, I mean, you kind of talked to the right person or just asked for it? Or was there process wise, like, how did you even know? Yeah, we worked through some connections that we had um, on the team. And we also did a lot of grant writing and got some some small grants. Okay. So even, even as students, like you're doing this stuff, making it happen as students at ASU. Yeah. And I think it was a compelling pitch just because it is a nonprofit. It's the whole goal is to give money away. And so right. since we are raising from uh, organizations that are trying to give money away, it, it was just a good vehicle for them. So that's, and it's still going on. That's right. Yeah. It's still running today. It's a little bit larger in terms of people. I think there's about 25, 30 in, um, volunteers there now. Okay. All locally focused. Yeah, that's right. So okay. it's, it's really, it's Arizona focused. It's Arizona microcredit initiative, um, largely Phoenix, just because that's where it's base. The, we, you know, we use, or they still use today, um, ASU classrooms for the most part for meetings. And so we're able to you know keep costs super low. There's no office, anything like that. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a great resource. And, and then how does, how does, if they're interested in, if someone's interested in hearing this and they're like, oh, I want to potentially apply for that. Or like, how could they get in touch with, with that group? Yeah. There's a website, azmicrocredit.org. That is, that's definitely the best way to get in touch with them. Okay. Awesome. 
Um, so now you, you moved from there to Amazon, uh, to Amazon, to Tuft and Needle, Tuft and Needle, um, right off the bat, software engineer started out at Tuft and Needle. That's right. Yep. Um, 2014. And now you are VP of a couple different things in just that short amount of time. I mean, I, I, I told you when we were talking, uh, that's super impressive in that short amount of time to, to make that those jumps. And I mean, you had a couple different roles, chief of staff and um, a, a few different things. And maybe could you, you know, tell us a little bit about how that happened and, and how you, how you worked your way up if you will, within the company. Sure. Yeah. I definitely just grew with the company. So when I came in, I was one of the first couple employees and uh, we actually, at that time we were even all remote. We hadn't necessarily figured out that Phoenix is where we wanted to really plant our roots. Mm -hmm. And at, and at that time we were doing about $5 million a year in revenue. Right. And now, you know, we're close to $200 million a year in revenue. We have 130 employees, so we've grown significantly. And so as we were growing, we, have lots of problems that need to be solved and somebody's got to solve them. And so kind of jumping around and, and figuring out how to solve certain problems where, where we needed someone. So that's sort of how my, my path, uh, covers so many roles. So it's kind of like the typical startup experience, if you will, that you hear about often, right? Like the, there's a lot of people doing probably a lot of people doing a lot of different things, even though their role is this, there's, they have their hand in a few different things or they get asked to, they get other jobs thrown at them. And, oh yeah, as a startup, you wear so many hats. And so that was just part of what it was like for the first couple of years in terms of growing. It's just, you had to get, somebody had to do it. And so we were all doing a lot of different roles and wearing a lot of different hats. Sure. Um, so when, when you started there, what was your, what was your experience with the mattress industry? in particular at the time. Yeah. My experience was I, I was a uh, dedicated Ikea shopper due to <laughs> being a college student and not having any money. Of course. Of and, course. um, so that was my experience. I hadn't actually been in and, and tried to be sold one of those multi-thousand dollar yeah. mattresses. Um, but what was so appealing about the company was the great vision that JT and Dehi, the founders had, they just knew that they wanted to really change this industry. That was their goal going in and is still their goal today. Day and to you know grow this into a large company, a household name, and then also just the way that they approached problems was very very pragmatic. It was just trying to solve the problem in front of them and create the best possible tool for that, and that really resonated with me. Hmm. At that time, were you was there like a or had had the marketing? already started kicked off. I mean, a lot, so many people in the Valley know Not at all. Needle, no, like no. With the billboards, right? The, the first few years of the company, there was very little marketing. Mm -hmm. It was actually almost entirely driven by word of mouth referrals from our customers. And we, we track NPS, which is net promoter score. It's a heuristic to measure how likely people are to sort of promote your brand for you and mm -hmm. recommend you to an, a friend. And so that was our one metric to measure from the beginning. And so 
in order to raise that number and raise how many people you know really wanted to talk about our brand, we just continue to iterate on the experience and make it better, make the product better, make delivery better, um, all the supply chain components that you know I had a I had a hand in there, and we were actually growing off of those referrals, which is more or less viral, right? Until um, maybe 2015, late 2015, when we really started advertising. Hmm. Yeah, I just I remember driving up and down the 202, seeing those 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 first few billboards of you know mattress stores being greedy and all that and all that. Oh, that because being in marketing, like I, I right over yeah, I, yeah I that's see, been I, a, yeah. a great campaign for us that we've kept going for a long time. It it really helps paint sort of what we're trying to do mm-hmm. and how we're different. Yeah, the incumbent industry. And then, and then, of course, you know, within the last year or so, it's you definitely got the attention of some of those legacy uh, mattress right. companies. For a long time, we were ignored and didn't right. matter, or we were really small fish. And I think we started getting to a big enough side size where we were truly a thorn in their side. And so that's when um, some of the incumbents started you know, doing advertising campaigns against us, like the Don't Get Boxed In campaign, and and then starting to roll out their own bed in a box um, right. brands such as Tulo. I have to say, as a marketer, one of the things that I always thought when I saw those those campaigns from from the other mattress companies, like when they basically came at you guys, it was it was funny to me that they would do that, especially in Phoenix, knowing how strong of a of a presence you guys have here. Yeah, it was very clearly targeted towards us. The oh the yeah, box looked question. like ours and everything. Yeah, but but the fact that they they were like, it's almost like targeting a favorite son. You know, like we, we we're the startup community. I mean, Tough the Needle is always one of the ones that um, comes up as, as a great example, even though it technically, I guess, started in San Francisco. But they decided to the founders decided to move here and, and build things here as headquarters. We view it as as ours, I think. Right. 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's just funny that like. I don't know if, if I'm on the marketing team for those those legacy companies. I don't know. I think they did more damage to themselves than anything. Well, yeah, that's sort of how it turned out. We were posting about it on our Facebook and we ended up getting hundreds of comments from our customers talking about how much they loved us and and um, some bad things about other other companies. And so we actually ended up, you know, because we have so many customers that love us and that's really the way that we've grown. You know, yep. Marketing helps yep. that. But um about half of our customers end up buying from us because they heard about us from someone they know. Right. And that referral carries a lot more weight than, than advertising. Oh, sure. Brand champions and not, not even so much influencers, but the existing customers that talk about. And like you said, the, was that the statistic that you use the N, NP? Yeah. NPS, NPS. net promoter score. Right. Um, that's a good one. Yeah. I like that. Um, so speaking of kind of the, the local startup community, I feel like you are one of the supporters here in the Valley of YesPHX, of the startup community, the tech community here. Um, coming from Oregon, you've spent enough time here now. I mean, what, do you, what is it about the area that you feel is attractive for, for startups to, to start here or even to, to move here? Yeah. One of the coolest things about Phoenix is this is a huge metropolitan area. This is a major city that really covers, um, a, and is a good 
view or sample of you know, what the United States looks like. And there's so many people here that the problems that you end up solving here are very real problems. You know, in San Francisco, there's a lot of apps for other apps who make apps, right? And what we have here are a huge customer base of consumers. And so for us, everyone needs a mattress. We've got 6 million customers here, potentially, right? right? Or potential customers. And so it's a great opportunity to build a consumer facing brand because you've got so many people here. Um, the other thing that's you know, done very well for us at Tuft & Needle and, and part of why we really you know, chose Phoenix as our home is we have a lot of talent here that will stay and the people we hire stay for years. They mm-hmm. don't stay for six months or nine months or a year. They actually want to be a part of this company for the long term. Um, the cost of living is low. That reflects on the company's costs as well in, in the cost of what it takes to hire talented people. And so we're, and then we're now actually bringing people from other cities. So we have people from New York that have relocated here, people from um, Florida and in different areas that have decided to live here. The cost is lower. They can work at at Tuft & Needle and be able to make a huge impact and find a new home here in Phoenix. Sure. There was LinkedIn comes out with like a monthly, their report based on information on people, people put on their profiles that they fill out and job information or location information. And, and I know that, um, I think it was for, for this month, one of the things is Chicago, San Francisco, New York, not Boston really, but, um, those other uh, LA even, um, people are moving here, which it's, it's, I think it's one of the things that, that comes up a lot in, in conversation in the community is, is it really like a, maybe not a hotbed, but like, is it, is there this, this potential, is there this truly this potential for, for it to grow and not to compare it to Silicon Valley, but to be, to be a a true factor and, and experience the growth of the startup community. I mean, I, I think it, I think it can, I think it, it is. And it's, there's definitely some steam being gathered Right. Yeah. I think there's a ton of potential. I think, I think it wouldn't be honest to say we're in Austin, Texas yet, or we're Silicon Valley, right? right? But we are growing and we're getting this critical mass, especially downtown. Downtown over the last four or five years has changed drastically in, in even more so, you know, over the past 10 years, it, it wasn't a great area to come down 10 years ago. And so we've actually started to get like this nexus. And, and I think that's really all it is, is the momentum and that keeping that flywheel going, you get people who are learning, they teach, you know, people who are coming into the industry and coming into startups and you have to keep that cycle going. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, being an ASU grad, I, I've been here about 12, just over 12 years. And I used to work downtown Phoenix, um, back when ASU and U of A and there, there were none of those schools had any sort of presence downtown. Right. Right. And ever since I feel like I watched some of those buildings go up and, um, I, it does feel like since ASU came in and, and even U of A put in some, some, um, buildings and, um, uh, but ASU's presence downtown, it feels like has grown the area. So it's, it's this Tempe is huge, obviously. I mean, ASU is in Tempe for those listening out of state that aren't familiar with Arizona, with the Phoenix area. Um, ASU is 
I think it's still the largest school in the country in terms of popula- population, like 50, yeah, 60,000. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Across all the campuses. And, and even I don't online. Think that's including online. Oh, it's know? not. A, okay. Yeah. Um, so it's, there's, there's a lot of uh, a base to pull from. And in the past, I think people did kind of, they went to ASU and then maybe they would be looking elsewhere. Go out of state. Yeah. Right. California, right. especially oh, probably. Yeah. Um, or they were coming to ASU from, from the Midwest, from Chicago. Um, maybe not so much from the Northeast, um, but definitely from the Midwest and, and the West, um, Northwest too. And, and then going back. Right. And now right. it's, I think people, like you said, like people want to stay here. They feel like there's this rising tide. Yeah. And we get a lot of people, you know, some of our, our best hires have been people who are from Arizona end up moving, going out to California or somewhere else. And then they're moving back. They want to live in Phoenix, in Arizona yeah. long term. And so they come and they kind of find tough to needle and it's a great fit. They've sort of gotten some experience, but like you said, I think now we're getting more people that there's more companies they can join. There's more opportunities here where they want to stay and they don't need to go, you know, tour somewhere else first. Yeah. Um, okay. So now in your, your current role, you, can you give, give us like the high level view of, of what you're responsible for and then maybe some of the day to day. Sure. Yeah. So I, I have two roles that I fill right now. So one is the head of our data science or analytics team. So we have a team of data scientists that we use um, for a, a ton of the operations of the business. So we use it for our financial forecasting. We use it to test the efficacy of all those billboards and all the advertising, um, as well as all of our KPIs reporting. Um, we're starting to get into more of the hardcore uh, machine learning or data science in the sense that we can build classifiers, things like that, um, as we get a little bit more sophisticated, but so that's one, one role. Mm-hmm. That's um, your VP of analytics role. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We internally, we call it the insights team. Okay. We, we decided to rebrand it internally as sort of, um, it, to make it more accessible to people in the sense that it was originally data science and data science is hard for people to understand, but what is, we want them to come to us, not with the solution they're looking for, but what problem they are trying to solve or what they're trying to learn about. And then we can actually go and use the right tools. And maybe that's just a quick SQL query. It might be Excel. Um, or a lot of the time it is more sophisticated data science. Hmm. And, and we, we then use that. Um, my other role is as the VP of Amazon. So we do a significant amount of business on Amazon, mm-hmm. um, eight figures in a, a year. And so I manage that relationship and, and, um, we have a small team. It's actually just the two of us that, um, have are fully dedicated to Amazon and, and running that business, that channel of the business. And that is when I was kind of doing some, some research ahead of time, I, there was a, an article I found, uh, which I'm sure you remember doing was with the street. Oh yeah. yeah. Account, right. Yeah. You were quoted Last pretty year. heavily in that one about like the industry. Um, it was from, from August of last year. Right. And, um, and even then I, I I'll quote you. We <laughs> okay. used to be afraid that Amazon would take business away from us, but the reverse has happened. Right. Yeah. So our approach to 
to Amazon and and other channels is that we want to be where our customers want to buy. Of course. Right. And so our job is to build the awareness, build the brand and get people talking about our brand to each other. And then whether they want to buy from our website or from Amazon, um, we sell on Lowe's.com now and in in certain Lowe's stores, then they can go there. Right. So it's wherever is the best for them. And it's not for us to say necessarily whether you should buy from one place or another. And so what we've kind of found is we have, you you know, some of our Amazon customers are people who found out about us and want to buy, um, on Amazon. They just decide that that's more convenient for them. Some of them are new customers that are coming in and finding us because of Amazon. They're, you know, on Amazon searching mattress, they see all of our reviews and then they learn about our brand. We actually get the reverse effect as well, which is we have people searching on Amazon. They find our product, find our reviews, then check out our direct website. Mm -hmm. They want to support us as a business or, you know, we have exceptional customer service. If you call, we pick up on the, on the first ring and they want to be a part of our brand, but they discovered us through Amazon. So it kind of goes both ways and we just let customers decide what, what's best for them. Of course. I, so that just saying that, I mean, people listening to this, it's, it's so underrated to be, everyone says it all the time, be where your customers can find you or be where your customers are and make it the easiest, eliminate the obstacles and make it easiest for them to do business with you. And it's like, you guys have done that. Yeah, I mean, right. that's that, that. So it's hugely smart on Tough the Needles part, of course. And I, and I think that really only works if you have a strong brand and you have people sure. talking about your brand and you have people looking for you actively. It, where I think people get into trouble is if you're an Amazon only business, you're selling something, you don't have much brand equity on that platform. They purposefully make most listings look the same. You get five bullet points and, and you know, six photos, right? And so if you're Amazon only, you have a hard time communicating with customers and building that brand. But since we are across multiple channels, we have our retail stores as well. We are focused on the brand first and then the channels are just our way of, of being available to the customer. It's yep. not our way of necessarily reaching out to the cost customer or acquiring new customers. Um, uh, totally. Uh, do, do you, do you feel like, um, with, with Amazon, it, I mean, it's obviously the 800 pound gorilla. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. At least we don't think, Oh yeah. It's, um, you always have your website, you always have your, you know, other, whatever ways people have to purchase from you. But Amazon is, I mean, how much did it grow in just like the year or two, the first year or two that you've been on Amazon? Sure. How much did our business grow? Well, what was it? Yeah. Like it started, I think you said it earlier, it was like, it, it's at um, eight figures at this point annually. Right. Yeah. It um, about doubled last year. Doubled. Yeah. Do you see it continuing to like just more and more continuing to grow in that sense, the Amazon side not, of it? Not nearly at that okay. pace. Uh, it slowed down significantly. A lot of that is because we weren't, we've been on Amazon for five years sure. now. We, we listed on there early on as a platform for reviews and yep. customers really trust Amazon reviews, but we didn't really put much attention towards it. And, and then we started selling on Amazon more and we were getting some sales, but we weren't really um, pushing that channel until last year when um, myself and my teammate, we started really focusing on Amazon. Until then, we had no one actually dedicated full time. It was just this you know sales channel we had and we kind of just used it and it was very passive. And so last year we really started 
um, going after that channel and we were able to create quite a bit of growth to fill out sort of where we should have been given given the attention that we were putting on it. Sure. Uh, w- without going into like proprietary details or anything, is it is can you give us an idea of like what what you did in a general sense of how you went after it? Yeah. In the last year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it comes down to advertising. You can advertise on the Amazon platform. Sure. We also, our listing was very dated. We had, it wasn't nearly optimized. And so optimizing the listing, that's really the largest levers you can pull. Hmm. Unlike on your direct channel, you can start doing email remarketing and you can start doing out of home advertising, things like that on Amazon. You're, you're a bit limited, but starting to get those advertising campaigns up and running was a huge piece of it. I mean, it almost sounds just like, like it's the low hanging fruit. Right. They're there. <laughs> They're there if you want it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, Cause you just, you, not that you just did some advertising or just, you know, you put, obviously put a lot of work into it, but, but you had an advertising plan, marketing plan and, and, um, put the time into it, even a, you know, a little bit of time or, or had someone dedicated to that role or a couple of people. And just even that, I mean, that's a, that's right. growth. Right. Like, and, and Amazon so. has a flywheel effect. You got to imagine their search algorithm is based on profitability. Mm-hmm. So unlike Google where, if you click it, they, they make their money right there on a Google ad on Amazon. They want to have people click on the thing that people are most likely to buy because they might make a dollar on that click, but they're going to make more than that if you actually purchase the item. Right. And so the more people that end up buying your product, the higher that you're going to end up ranking and sort of compounds that way until you can build a leadership position, which is where we're at on our market of, um, $500 and higher cost mattresses. Mm-hmm. So at this point is, um, is one more important than the other, as far as when you initially were, had a presence on there, it was about the reviews. So like that was a big, a big deal. Um, and now it's just more about being available, having the product be available. So is, does one outrank the other or, the, or would you say that they're, they're equal? I think if we could only choose one, we'd still keep the reviews. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of our own reviews. We also have Google reviews, but people like third parties and trusted platforms. And so being able to see those reviews and and know that we're not faking them or anything like that goes a long ways because we can, we can continue to sell on our channel. Um, and that helps with that. So, but that said, it, it makes sense for us to be on Amazon to, to pull off Amazon would be to lose sales for, for no reason. Right. And so by being on there, it's, um, a, a lot of new sales with very little marginal costs. E-commerce in general, I mean, Amazon more specifically, but, um, it, where do you see it personally? Where do you see it kind of going? Do you, do you see it? Are we at a point of critical mass at this point, or, I mean, Amazon's opening, you know, brick and mortar places now, which is hilarious that it's, it's coming back to that. Um, but there's no ca- there's no people, man, right. you know, yeah, it's, it's I, computerized I still. Everything happens in cycles. Yeah. Like if we think a long time ago, you had, you know, like your boot maker and your, um, you know, seamstress who would make a you know, sheets or drapes or something. Right. And they would each have a store. I'm, I'm talking like a long time ago, yep. right. Then introduce the department store. They are going to sell absolutely everything. Right. And that was sort of the status quo, um, before the internet. And, and then the internet brought in the ability for e-commerce companies to go direct. So instead of selling through a retailer or distributor, they can actually sell directly, gain back some of that margin and actually build a personal brand. And then we started finding, you know, you have 
the giant like Amazon, who they are, there's so many of these online companies now, you start to aggregate them. And so you build like aggregators. But the downside of those aggregators is, like I mentioned earlier, everything on Amazon sort of looks the same. And so I think we'll start to see again brands really breaking out in the future on their own. And I think that cycle will continue. And e-commerce for sure is just getting started. I think there are there's a huge segment of the population that isn't comfortable buying online yet. Mm. And you know, us in the startup world living downtown, that seems kind of foreign to us. But we we found, for example, with our retail stores, we have a ton of traffic in those stores. There's a lot of people who want to come in. Sure. Some of them are to try the mattress. A lot of them are. And they just want to see it real quick, even though we have a, a trial where you can buy it online, try yeah. it for a hundred days. And if you don't like it, return it, get your money back. But we also have a segment that this is one of their first online purchases. They are you know, older folks um, or people that aren't necessarily comfortable buying online yet, especially this size of purchase. And so we'll start to see larger and larger purchases go online. I mean, look at Carvana, they're selling entire cars online now. So, but, but the retail aspect, I don't think will go away. I think the, there's going to need to be creative solutions because the, the economics of e-commerce are better, right? You don't have to pay for the overhead of a rent on a store. And so you can just ship directly and shipping is, is cheaper than that usually, but the experience of going into a store, people are going to want. I totally agree, which is why it's so interesting that Amazon's doing that now with, with those, those spots, the brick and mortars. I, I was in, um, San Jose a couple of weeks ago and saw one for the first time and went in and it was just, it was a little surreal, you know, because you know what it is. And I mean, I, and I, when they first announced them, I was like, Oh, these are kind of crazy. And, um, but the fact that it's coming back, that malls are empty, you know, a lot, or a lot of malls are empty, not every, but right. Malls are closing. Malls are closing, country, yeah. you know, like, and, but these, but Amazon is and bookstores are but like, there's an Amazon stand right. in Scott South fashion square. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, so it's, it's just funny how things have shifted like retail. And I think Zach, um, Zach from Coplex posted something about this recently, it, something about, um, the sh retail isn't dying. Cause it's not, it's, it's just shifting. Just evolving. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting. And do you think like the, do you think that the, the, the generation, it's a, it's, it's always a generational thing. Like you're the first customers for, for a tough to needle. My guess, I could be way off, but my guess would be that they were on the younger side, um, millennial age and and then it's kind yeah, of sure. aged up since then as like any other tech startup really which is tough to kneel it's essentially it's a technology company um so are you seeing it shift on your end too are you seeing like the the older generation now they're seeing maybe their kids or their their grandkids they're they're purchasing these types of making these types of purchases and and they're like oh i well we should try that yeah, our, our demographic is very spread across the board now. Mm -hmm. I think it's something like 20% are over 50, um, which for e-commerce is is un, unheard of, really. Yeah. Um, an interesting story about retail. So we actually started the store because we had people, we were online only yep. and we started our first store because people were saying, Hey, where can I try this out? Yep. And so in everything we've done, like I mentioned that pragmatism is, is based on what customers are asking and, and what they are wanting. And so we ended up setting up this 
mattress on a frame and we sort of made it look like a studio bedroom in one of our conference rooms. And we said, and we put it on Google and Yelp and said, you can come by. And the first week we had one person and then we had five and then 10. And, and we got to the point where we were getting a couple hundred people in a single day would, would come through and there was a big wait and we had to create new systems for that. But what was interesting is then the next question people had is, can I take it home now? Do you have inventory? So we said, oh, well, they want inventory. So we ended up setting up our own inventory. We had a downstairs piece of our office that we ended up filling with pallets and pallets of mattresses. We had truckloads come every week, um, which our team was unloading and we are not you know, fulfillment experts and our, our HQ staff and, and team was unloading those. Um, and what was so interesting is our, our conversion went through the roof. Our number of sales of people coming in was skyrocketed. We would, we were selling a lot of mattresses, but our return rate was also rate going up. Mm-hmm. And we found that people were buying it, but more as an impulse purchase. And so now they're more likely to return it. And we ended up finding a happy medium by doing same day delivery. We work with a company called dark store now. And what we are able to do is when people come in, if they like it, they can buy it on the spot, which is on, we have iPads that we've, we've built to be able to check customers out and then we'll have it delivered to them same day. Or if they want it a different day, that's fine too. But we found that that's actually an even better experience is that instead of taking it home and this is a large, it's, it's compressed, but still about the size and weight of a, of a mini fridge. It's like 75 pounds, uh, in, in almost four feet tall. And so to get that in your car and take it home is a little bit of a hassle. And so having that delivery come later that evening ended up being sort of the perfect mix. And that's been a really great evolution of, of retail for us. And that's now our default for people buying in the store. Yeah. And that's so super smart that you guys just on, on the base level, you listened, you listened to your customers and to what potential customers want. Yeah, that's been kind of the, in my opinion, the key to Tough to Needle's success. Like I mentioned, we we ask everyone this NPS survey and we read every response. So we we ask them how likely they are to recommend Tough to Needle to a friend and they can rate zero through 10 and then they'll leave a comment. And we read every single one of those comments. And a lot of the things that we have built are in response to issues that, that customers ran into. And a lot of the time it, it may not even be issues that would be quote unquote our fault. They're just things that are happening. Um, we were having an issue where customers would have mold sometimes under their mattress because it was on the floor, on carpet, in a humid area, right? And that's, that's just going to happen. And we could have said that's not our fault, but instead we read that and we actually changed the construction of our mattress. We added costs to do that and built a new layer that is the bottom layer. Now it's um, made out of something called spacer fabric. It's sort of the same thing. It's in your, in your backpack straps that's very breathable mm-hmm. and solve that problem. And that's just, we just kept doing that over and over and over again for, for years. And we're able to get to a place where our cus- our customer experience, our product, everything about the experience is good enough that people are, are talking about it to each other. So not just listening, but then also executing on what you're hearing. Yeah. Like, yeah I mean, that's doing something about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so I, there, there's a lot of companies that get caught. They don't listen, or if they do listen, they kind of dismiss what the customer is saying as the, as that the company knows better, um, right. or well, you, the customer's always right. Right. right, right. We, we all know that, but course, it, to course. actually act on that is a little bit, a little bit. Exactly. Different. And, and the fact that you guys, you know, you did, you added cost 
you did add a cost to to make sure that the whatever problem there was that people were talking about was fixed. Right. And, and it, it comes back to us in the, yep. in the sense that, you know, every dollar that we're spending there, we are no longer needing to spend on advertising because our customers are doing the job for us, which is which is really generous. And so we're able to do a lot of that and, and make our product superior because we don't have to put in the marketing costs that um, our competitors necessarily need to. This has been great. Um, I, I totally appreciate you taking the time out to, to do this. I, I, I have one more, one more thing I, I want to, want to ask you in terms of your role, um, and really just what you do in general, like I, things change so fast in the tech world and in yes, the industry. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, of course. Um, how do you, how do you go about trying to anticipate things changing or what changes may, may happen. Um, is, I mean, how do you, how do you even begin to do that? Especially in, in that industry where you guys are the, you are change leaders. Right. One, one way kind of, I think about this is you want the day-to-day operations to be as lean as possible, right? The more reactive you are, the more time you're spending on just keeping the, the ship afloat, the less time you have to think about it. Right. But if every single piece of the business, if everybody could go on vacation for a month and nothing would go wrong, right. Then that means you have that much time to just be thinking of new ideas and, and innovating. And so a lot of what we have done is build the software and systems that we need to make our team really efficient to um, reduce the number of just issues and problems that we have getting a, everything as streamlined as we can. And given we have to balance that with growth as well, but that's been a focus of ours, and especially coming from the, the software world where we wanted to build ourselves kind of the tool sets to have the company run as, as lean and as smoothly as we can. Great and, stuff. And then we have entire teams that the only thing they're focused on is, is it is innovation. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, you have to, you have to, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. But by, by way of example, you know, we're shipping hundred plus million dollars of product a year, a couple hundred, and we have a supply chain team of, of four people. Right. And so we're able to actually run that entire business all the way in. We, we procure all of our subcomponents as well. We don't just buy matches. We buy every piece of it and assemble it. And um, that team is able to stay extremely lean because of some of the systems we've built in. Technology. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff, thanks again. Um, this, this has been, I know for me, uh, this e-commerce is, is not my lane per se. So talking to you about it is, is super insightful. Um, and I feel like I learned a lot. Hopefully people that are, that are listening to this, whether it's today, tomorrow, or 10 years from now, um, are learning a lot too. And thanks again for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been ESPHX Presents. Uh, We'd like to thank our sponsors, 48 Startups. And of course, the man on the wheels of steel. To my left, Raz Yalov of Zcast. Um, And the whole ESPHX community uh, for, for doing everything that you guys do. See you next time.